We welcome you into another edition of Talk and Isles, the New York Islanders official interview-based podcast. I'm Greg Picker, Islanders color commentator on the radio team, joined alongside by Corey Wright. And Corey, we go to a Hall of Famer this week, Pat Lafontaine. Pat Lafontaine, one of our most requested guests and also one of maybe the best players in Islanders history, especially in the post-dynasty era. So had a lot of fun chatting with him about the Easter epic, uh, even his story about getting drafted by the Islanders, barnstorming and playing in the 1984 Olympics. So a lot of fun getting a chat with Pat. Also got to talk to him about Northwell Presents, the park at UBS Arena and why? Because Pat Lafontaine had a pretty good backyard rink himself. So Greg, this one was a long time coming, but definitely worth it. Really fun chatting with Pat. 865 games in his NHL career, 1,013 points, 530 games with the Islanders, 566 points. And as we mentioned, a Hockey Hall of Famer inducted in 2003. We'll take it away with Pat Lafontaine. 28 seconds. It's picked up by Pat Lafontaine. Come back quickly down the right side at center. One hand. Here goes Lafontaine right in on goal all alone. The pickup he scores. We now welcome in the Islanders legend, Hockey Hall of Famer, Pat LaFontaine to the Talking Isles podcast. And Pat, we know you had a, a storied NHL career, not just a storied National Hockey League career. So I'd like to take it back to the early days. And you were born in St. Louis, lived there for a bit before you moved to the Detroit area. But getting some ice time when you were really young in the St. Louis area, what was that like? I read a story that maybe a neighbor had to help out because I'm sure in the early 70s, trying to find ice in Missouri may not have been all that easy no i mean to to be born in st louis and make it to the national hockey league back in 1965 it was unheard of and that's not a normal pathway you take my dad was born in windsor and in tecumseh windsor in canada uh, i have a grandmother on my mom's side who was born in rosemont montreal so we had uh, uh, with a name like lafontaine we had a, a big french canadian background so when my dad was transferred and he took a job with chrysler he took the love of his, he had six other brothers and he and my uncle Paul was my godfather. They both played high school hockey. And so my dad's uh, love of the sport being born in Canada uh, and then instilling it into uh, his, his uh, St. Louis born sons and, and my sister Renee was probably a thrill for, for anybody born in Canada. You're born with skates on basically. And it's, it's, you know, as we all know, um, but he introduced this to an outdoor rink. It was in Kirkwood. It's now got a dome on it. But he introduced us, and the first time I was on ice, I double runners on, and I went out, and everybody looked made it look so easy, and I kept falling down. And I remember getting really upset and, and didn't want to do it because it, it, I just kept falling down. And it wasn't until a year later I came back again, and same thing, put on my skates. And this time my dad grabbed my hand and, and did a windmill and just kind of shot me across and I started gliding on this outdoor rink in Kirkwood, Missouri. And um, the feeling I got was, uh, was incredible. It was one of those moments where I said, I want to learn how to do this. This is, this is a thrill. And uh, at that moment, I committed myself to skating. My dad got to know the family and their kids who opened up the rinks on early on a Saturday morning at 5 a.m. And my brother and I and my dad and their families and the boys would, we'd all get there at five, put our stuff on before hockey started at seven 30. And we would play shinny from five to seven, um, at this outdoor rink. And my dad was then transferred to Michigan. Uh, I moved at seven and we happened to move to a lake called Williams Lake. An arena was built a mile away, 
uh, called Lake the Marina. So it just kind of was serendipitous. It worked out. But the first time was at Kirkwood Ice Arena uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm excited because of two things. There's a lot of young, really good boys and girls coming out of St. Louis. And obviously, Michigan is one of the hotbeds in the United States. So it was nice to be a young American at the time and be a part of watching the game grow. Well, growing up in St. Louis and Detroit, I would imagine you were not a big Islanders fan growing up. But from what we understand, that you have a memory of watching Bob Nystrom score the goal in 1980. So for the fans that don't know, could you share the memory of where you were and what you remember? Yeah, no, it's 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 a vivid memory I have. It was only about three months earlier, four months earlier, that the U.S. just won the gold medal. So it was 1980. I was 15 years old. And my dad uh, had my brother and I doing spring cleaning. We were always working around the house. So whatever leaves we missed in the fall, we were out there in the spring. And I remember exactly where we were. And he was yelling from inside saying, John and Pat, come on in. There's a, the, the, the game's in overtime. Um, and he must have not seen it earlier because we would have probably been watching the whole game. So we ran inside and watching it over time, and uh, it's clear as day. Lauren Henning gets the pass. He shoots it over to Tonelli. Tonelli skates in. Bobby's going up the left side. Tonelli goes on his forehand, flips it, tip, you know, backhand tip into the net, and we're all jumping up and down. And um, and I remember being really excited for that moment. And then the first thing that popped in my head was, where the heck is Long Island? And I, I immediately grabbed an encyclopedia, and I went on a map, and I went, there it is. So the Islanders, for a young boy in Michigan who grew up, you know, was raised, born in St. Louis, pretty much raised after seven in Michigan, now understood, okay, this is Long Island. Literally less than four years later, guys, it was almost four years to the date, but um, a couple months earlier, if you would have told me that I was going to play in Winnipeg and put an Islander jersey in, my first line mates were Bobby Nystrom on my right and John Tonelli on my left, I thought you would have been the craziest people I would have ever known. But that's exactly what happened to a young uh, kid, uh, you know, watching them win and then wondering where it was Long Island. And here I was drafted by the Islanders. And those two guys were my first line mates. And to take it full circle, Lauren Henning and his wife set Mary Beth and I up on a blind date. And I always tell him, I think that was your greatest assist off the ice. But so those three guys played a very impactful role in, you know, my early, early uh, Islander days. Well, we'll get to your first few NHL games in a little bit because especially game number two uh, really stands out. But before that, it's 1982-83, uh, and you end up playing in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. And we were wondering a little bit, how does a kid from Michigan end up there? But you did share that you're, you had family from the Montreal area, so I'm, I'm sure that had a big impact. But take us through that first year. First of all, is that how you ended up there because you had some family in, in Quebec? But we'll give you the numbers, fans. 104 goals. 130 assists, 234 points in 70 games. One of the records broken was held by Mike Bossy, most goals by a rookie in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. Uh, how did that season come to be in that fashion? Oh, it's an interesting question and a good question, Greg. Um, we had this amazing midget team called Compuware, which you guys would know now is Peter Carmanos, who bought the Hartford Whalers and moved them to Carolina and eventually sold. So he was our general manager of the very first CompuWare team. And on that team, we had Alfie Turcott, Ally Afraidy, and um, uh, Jeff Rolichek. So four of those kids got drafted pro. There was another four, I guess, seven in total 
four went and played pro. The other four played D1 hockey. And back then in 1981-82, you never heard of that. But that set up an opportunity to go play major junior hockey in Canada. Uh, I was actually given a, a scholarship to go at Michigan State, but I was only 16, 17 at the time. And I remember telling Ron Mason, thank you very much, but I, I, I want to go where I think I have the best chance to develop. Told my mom and dad, I'd love to play junior hockey. And um, if I don't make it by the age of 20, I'll go back to college and get my degree. But back then, if you go play junior hockey, and still today, guys, you lose your eligibility to play college hockey, um, which is another story. But uh, so there was a team called the Cornwall Royals with a gentleman by the name of Gord Woods. Fantastic scout, great guy. He drafted the great late and great teammate too, Dale Howardchuck, and then Dougie Gilmore, Dougie Gilmore were the two centermen. And I was coming up as a young midget player and I was going to be there kind of in that line of maybe potential next centerman. And the draft was coming up. And back then as an American and being in Michigan, guys, you could have your choice between the Quebec League, the Ontario League, or the Western League. It was about two weeks before the draft. They were picking six and Belleville was picking fourth. And they called me up, Belleville, and said, we want to pick you. And I said, guys, I'll do respect. I, I don't know much about Belleville or junior hockey, but I've given my word to Cornwall. And they said, well, what if we pick you? And I said, I, guys, I, I still have a chance to go play in the Quebec League, potentially. I could play in the Western League, but I gave my word. And my word's my bond. I gave my word I would play in Cornwall. And that's the best I could tell you. I'm sorry. And so they ended up picking me anyway. And then when Eric Taylor, who was in Montreal Juniors, Verdun Juniors at the time, which were the Junior Canadians, he saw, because their draft was three years, three about three hours earlier, and he saw that Belleville picked me fourth, and he had always wanted me to go to Quebec League, but I had given my word to Cornwall, so he picked me in the ninth round. It's just saying, you never know. So then the story goes, Wayne Gretzky buys Belleville. And now, as a 16-year-old, I'm asked to come up, and, and my, my mom and dad always said, hey, things happen for a reason. Let's do the right thing. So... On our way up, we were going to visit Belleville and then go to Verdun and see both places out of respect. And I was upset because I had given my word to Cornwall and I'd already seen Cornwall and Dale Howardchuck was there and Dougie Gilmore. And as an American, you heard things like um, your first year, they're very tough. You, you, you want to make sure you go to the right place at the time. So I literally, as a 16-year-old, meet Wayne Gretz in a limo with his brother off the 401 and he's like hey kid why don't you come play for my junior team and I think he just was his first NHL year he had 137 points and he was half owner of Belleville and a guy by the name of Doc Vaughn and uh, obviously I was impressed it's Wayne Gretzky and I went and saw the arena then met the doc beautiful arena got in the car and drove to Verdun visited Verdun went with Eric Taylor looked around and I was always a Gila Fleur fan and Gilbert Perot fan. And I just said, Hey, listen, guys, I'm really sorry. I gave my word to Cornwall and you guys picked me. Thank you. But I'm, I'm giving my word now to go play in Verdun. So then I get a call a week later and they said, Hey, great news. Belleville's going to trade you to Cornwall. You can come back. And I said, guys, I already gave my word now to Verdun. So that year, David Branch, we talk about it, who was this commissioner, he changed the rule that year because of that draft that if you're now born in Eastern U.S., you can only go to the Quebec League. If you're born in the Midwest and U.S., you can only go to Ontario League. 
And I think it's Chicago on, you have to play in the Western Hockey League because of that situation. That's wow. That's a, that's way like many levels deeper than I thought that story was going to go. Cause I always love hearing that where teams just kind of take a flyer. I think that may have been, I want to say how Pavel Bure wound up in Vancouver. Uh, I mean, obviously Anders Lee was taken in the sixth round because no one was sure if he was going to play hockey or football in so his second real, year of eligibility. Yeah. Anders Lee so as well. Real savvy move there by Verdun to just pick you in the ninth round. But uh, on the topic of drafts, you know, when you get drafted to the NHL, you know, you go third overall in 83, you know, you're talking about watching the Islanders win the Stanley Cup in 1980. Teams that win the Stanley Cup, let alone win two or three Stanley Cups in a row, usually are not picking very high up in the draft, but they had made a pretty savvy trade with Colorado to get to that point. So, I mean, were the Islanders on your radar going into the draft that year? Obviously, they're a high pick, but I know there's a whole intrigue with Detroit and Steve Eiserman and you going into that draft just... Maybe talk a little bit about your experience of draft day. Oh, it's a good question, Corey, because, you know, I, I played junior hockey in Montreal and the draft was there that year. And we, we ended up winning the president's cup at the Montreal forum because the Canadians and the Nordiques were knocked out and we had 18,000 fans cheering for us. And I was able to carry the president's trophy at 17 around the forum. And then here a few months later is the draft. So my mom, dad, Donnie Meehan was my agent. I was probably one of Donnie's first clients. Now he, he's here we are 41 years later, and he's representing um, Connor Bedard. But uh, I was sitting there, and I had only heard that there were two places I was going to go during the draft. And it was either going to be uh, Hartford or back home to the, the Red Wings. There wasn't a lot of conversation about the Islanders, um, and Bill obviously kept the pretty – pretty low profile and kept it tight because when I heard Hartford pick Sylvain Turgeon turned to my mom and dad and my agent Donnie me and I said well it looks like I'm heading back home to Detroit and at that moment I heard my name announced and Donnie said the Islanders and I went oh my god the Islanders so you're right very rare do you see a team win you know three or four Stanley Cups and have that kind of a pick so for a kid who you know at 15 was looking for where Long Island was with Bobby Nystrom scoring that overtime goal and then to be picked by a Stanley Cup winning team. Um, I couldn't have been more thrilled. We, we were, we were, so we were caught by surprise, but super excited and in awe of the fact that you can go play with a Stanley Cup winning hockey team. So in 1983, after that draft, you finish up your junior career because the following year is going to be an Olympic year and you're selected to be part of the U.S. Olympic team. Now, in those days, it was really a barnstorming type of of tour to set yourself up and, and play with the roster for months leading up to the 84 Olympics in February. I'm sure, though, that that team had a, a lot of pressure considering it's the first Olympics after the 1980 Miracle on Ice. What was that entire season like in the lead up to the games in Sarajevo? Um, it was it was interesting. It, we I think we had a banquet in just about every city we went to. I remember, Greg, we had a 17-game, 19-day road trip. Uh, we were opening up in all these. We played in uh, uh, America, uh, AHL, college, ECHL. We toured, and um, there was a time it was just crazy. And everywhere we went, there was a dinner. There, there was It might have been 21 days, but it was between 20, 19 and and 21, probably 21. We probably had a few days here and there, but but I just remember everywhere we went, there was a big dinner banquet. Yeah, but for a kid who was 15, uh, it was it was the night of my 15th birthday that Arizioni scored. And for being an American, I I can't tell you what that 
did to inspire young boys and girls watching that and saying, you know, college hockey is an amazing feat to achieve, but now all of a sudden you can even raise the bar to Olympics. And then these Olympians are going and playing pro and now all of a sudden the door flew wide open. So to be able to play on the 84 team, I always tell boys and girls, if you ever get a chance to represent your country, especially in a foreign land, uh, there's no greater thing to do than play for your country. Um, I learned so much that year. I was not ready to jump in the NHL. Uh, to play that three quarters of a season with that Olympic team really was an amazing experience. You can't put a price tag on, and it prepared me to join the Islanders. Unfortunately, uh, U.S. could not replicate what happened four years prior, no medal in those games. But pretty much immediately after, you and fellow Olympian from the Canadian side and fellow recent Islander first-round pick, Pat Flatley, Joined the club late February, February 29th, actually, in Winnipeg, as you mentioned, as part of the drive for five, four straight Stanley Cups. And how much pressure did you feel being really part of that next generation? But did it also help that Flats joined the team at the same exact time as you? And then, as we alluded to earlier, game number two, you uh, pulled off quite the feat in Toronto. Well, I think coming in with Flats, it was great. Flats and I played against each other, I think, 13 times. I think we were six, six and one going into the Olympics. That's how many times we played Team Canada. And um, and I often joke, you know, how many times can you follow up a miracle with another miracle? So <laughs> we we were in awe of what the 80 team did. We were honored to be able to follow in their footsteps as best we could. But coming into the Islanders with Flats was great because we we both he was a couple of years older and we both just went through a very similar experience. And we were both coming in at the same time. So I think what Bill Torrey did in Al Arbor, allowing us to kind of come in together, I think was a really, it was a brilliant move. And it allowed us to kind of work our way in to earn our, earn our keep. Uh, I remember Al kind of dangling a carrot with both of us and putting us out on the power play and giving us all this ice time. And um, of course we went to the Stanley Cup finals that year. And uh, the start of the next year, I think he said, okay, well now you're going to be fourth line and, see how you deal with this adversity and earn your way back. But coming with flats, uh, Greg, I think really made it special too for both of us. Just to fill in the gap on some of those stats, game number two was at Toronto. You had three goals and two assists for five points and really <clears throat> nine points in your first four games. So that is a heck of a welcome to the NHL. Nystrom coming in and stop. Rebound score. He got his third. You have just seen you folks out in Calgary, LaFontaine, number 16, get his third goal of his young NHL career. And, you know, when you talk about coming into the NHL and having mentors and, you know, roommates and that kind of thing, I had the chance to talk to Brian Trache the other day, and he talked about the fact that you guys, maybe a few years removed from that, were roommates, but... Just what was your relationship like with Trotz? Because even if you look at old photos, it seems like you two really gravitate towards each other. So what's your relationship like with Brian yeah. Trotz? I, I love Trotz. He uh, he took me in as a young 19, put his arm around me and kind of kids, you know, should let me show you the ropes. And I watched him all the time and practice in games. I watched him, Ian Boss, um, Denny. You know, I've always was watching these guys and um, learning every day. But Trotz... Um, he, you know, he's a true, they're all champions, true champions, but Trotz took the time out and really, you know, we're both centermen. 
Um, we both understand that position. And obviously, you know, at the time, there were only, in my mind, there were the two great leaders in the game, and that was Brian Trotche, and it soon became a guy like Mark Messe because they're centermen, four cups. So to learn from Brian and to have those probably three years of him really mentoring um, and just the example that he set, uh, I tell everybody, I look back at my career and how blessed and lucky I was to have Brian Trotche as a centerman to learn from, a friend. He's a dear, obviously a dear friend and teammate. And how lucky I was to to know Brian and be his teammate. Well, unfortunately, the drive for five does end in Stanley Cup final in Edmonton in five games. You did score two goals in what ended up being the, the final game of the season when the Oilers <clears throat> knocked you guys out after 19 consecutive playoff series wins. But we'll fast forward a couple of years to I'm sure what you get asked more about than any other accomplishment in your entire hockey career and and all fans know where we're going with this and that's the easter epic april 18th into the 19th 1987 game seven patrick division semifinals islanders at washington 3-2 final goal scored at 847 of the fourth overtime now during the course of that game maybe at what point in overtime did you realize this is not just like any other game well i've told this story before greg um it was really at the very end we every time there was a um a, a stoppage and a, an ice surface in between intermission. I mean, we were trying to figure out because uncharted territory. So put our legs up, have, you know, orange peels. Uh, I, Miko, Mackel and I t- talked to the third guy into bringing us some oxygen, which I found out later he got in big trouble for. People forget Trot scored the first, no, yeah, Flat scored the first goal. Trot scored with about five minutes to go. And we were down three games to one. And I tell the story because I think there was only one other team and it was an Islander team, I believe that was down three to one and came back. It didn't happen very often. It was almost like you go down three to one, uh, you know, pack, you get your golf clubs ready, but um, found a way to win game five. We found a way to get win game six and we, we scratched and clawed. So to claw our way back in and force overtime, the trots, I remember it was a backhand through Bob Mason's legs. People forget Bob Mason was my teammate and my goalie in the Olympic team. Um, so I knew Bob actually very well. David Jensen was another player on that team that I played was my line mate on the Olympic team. He was for Washington. So each overtime went over. And if you look at the first five or seven minutes of each start of that overtime period, we came out with gangbusters, like full of energy, a lot of, a lot of, you know, probably some penalties that could have been called. I think Van Helleman probably could have called a lot more. People forget there was only one referee and two linesmen back then. And then the next 15 to 13 minutes, we just hung on and just wanted to make sure nobody was going to score a goal. And I tell you, Kelly Rudy uh, and Bob Mason, the pucks had to look like beach balls to them coming at them because they were saving everything. But it was right before the last shift and Jimmy Pickard, God bless him, our trainer, took a a water bottle, squeezed it down the back of my neck and said, hey, pop, because he called me pop. He's pop. You're going to pop one in. I can feel it. And uh, I felt that cold water. And I looked up and it's like 157, 158 in the morning. They started playing music from the Twilight Zone. So you heard the da na 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 And I looked around. I looked over my shoulder. I was keeping my eye on Bobby Basson, but I looked over my shoulder and there are people sleeping in the stands. And it's seven periods. It's it's 75 shots, 57 shots. So yes, Greg and, and Corey, there was a moment where I said, this is this not happening. This is surreal. Um, and then I'm, Bobby Basson was coming off. I just jumped on for him. 
Gordonine was pinching on the right side, uh, which, you know, I just said, I better cover for Gordy. I, I, so I'm in a right defensive position. He came around the net, tried to center it to, um, uh, in front of the net to Dale Henry. Uh, and bounced off, I think, Langway or Hatcher's stick. And it came to me on my back end. And I tell this story. I've never shot a puck like that again. That's the only time I've ever shot a puck where I had to take it from a defensive zone position, spin around, and it was on its it was on its side. And I just said, just shoot it, hit the net, please. I mean, that's the way it was. Just please hit the net. And I heard the post, and Dale Henry was screening. You know, he, he deserves a lot. He was screening Bob Mason. And then it seemed like everything stopped. And then, and then Bob Mason dropped his knees. And then when I knew he dropped his knees, our guys started jumping up and down. And, and it was, it was a really special feeling because the Islanders have set a tradition all these years was who's going to be the hero. Now Deneen stepping in, going in around the goal. Deneen out front, shoots, hit a stick, comes to the line. LaFontaine shot, he scores! LaFontaine at the blue line, here in the fourth overtime. Firing the shot and winning the series. Scoring at 8.47 of a fourth overtime period and the Islanders pour off the bench and the Capitals stand there exhausted with their heads hanging low, but they gotta keep their heads up for putting a show up like this. Going out in the seventh game, LaFontaine ended it. I think it might have been deflected in front and Mason was given little chance, but it's over. Here's the official. You win in overtime. I mean, it's just, it's it's one of those things. I'm sure the Canadians have their culture. The Penguins have theirs, the Flyers, the Edmonton Oilers. But in overtime, you're known Islanders, you're going to win. Somebody's going to score that goal like Bobby Nystrom, Johnny Tonelli, all of those years, Jude Druin. You score in overtime as an Islander. And, you know, it took the whole team. I was fortunate that, the goalie didn't, you know, Mason didn't see the puck. But I'm telling you, 30 years later, it's almost 35, 36 years, I still see him. And he goes, you know, calls me a pain in the ass. He's like, every time, everywhere I go, and, you know, I was the goal. I said, sorry about that, Mason. But uh, he's the goalie coach. He was the goalie coach at the time for the, the, the Wild. But that was, that was a moment I'll never forget the team, the way we battled and came back like an Islander team does. We landed at 6 a.m., because there was a bunch of hoopla afterwards. We got in, uh, actually we landed at five. We got into a bus from LaGuardia. We went to the Coliseum. We got there at six. I got home just before seven, went to bed, went to Eastern Mass at noon, went back to bed, got up, and we had a bus at 6 p.m. that night to leave for Philly, to play Philly the next night. And that game went into overtime. And Miko Mackler scored, and we won two to one. So I don't know if people know that extended part of it but we actually played a game within 24 hours about yeah that's, that's the wild part and we've had kelly rudy on the show before and he talked about kind of exactly what you did just the, it was such a quick turnaround going to the next game i think he said his toes curled under his feet when he took off his skates because he was so dehydrated obviously goalies lose you know a lot of weight during a game uh jumping ahead a little bit and i gotta credit the guys at nhl network because they point. They showed you recently a picture of you and Gila Fleur at an All Star game, and you told yeah. a great story about how you acquired a Gila Fleur stick during an <laughs> Islander Ranger game. So, could you tell the fans that story? Yeah. So, Gila Fleur and Gilbert Perot are my idols, and every time you know, kids today they can go on their phones and look at videos of goals. 
we would go to the newspaper and look for names in the box score. That's what we did. And I would look for two names, and that was Guy Lafleur and Gilbert Perot. And those were two guys I looked up to. So I'm an Islander, and it's Guy's 1,000th game as a New York Ranger. And obviously, anytime you're around your idol, you're a 12-year-old kid. And at the time, I was probably my, you know, 20, low 20s, 23, 24. And um, we were winning four to two. And I remember what end it was, it was in the, you know, the end of the third period. There was probably about 20 seconds to go. And I thought, all right, if they score a goal, it's only four to three. I can live with that. But I can't live without asking Guy Lafleur if I can have his stick. So as a as a fan on the ice playing professional hockey, I said, Guy, Guy, he's what, what? I said, can I have your stick after the game? And he goes, let me score the goal first. And he said his, his English, broken French, broken English, French language. And, uh, and I literally just backed away from him a little bit because, you know, it's his 1,000th game. If he scores, God bless. And we still win four to three. But you know what? I get the stick and the stick's right around the corner here. I've got his 1,000 stick. He had somebody had signed it. And uh, it's something I'll never forget. One of my cherished uh, memorabilia items. So after 1990-91 and a few more productive years as an Islander, I think most fans know that uh, you end up going to Buffalo after a, a tough negotiation with, with Bill Torrey. Obviously, you're beloved on Long Island, beloved in Western New York. Uh, can you just take us through the Buffalo days, though, and how you were able to carve out a, a career there? And, and I think your, your famous line, because you wrapped up with the Rangers as well for a season, is what, you're the only player to play for three teams and never have to change your license plate. No, and I think that's, Greg, I think that's true today. In fact, you probably can go in just about any sport, and I don't know of another athlete that's been traded twice in his own state and played. So it's uh, pretty unique. I know there's three or four other guys that have been played for all three teams, but they've also played for other teams. I can say I only played for those three teams. That's why I had to retire. As a, I had to retire because I couldn't play anywhere else. No. Um, uh, but, no, uh, going to Buffalo, um, you know, at the time, Alexander McGillney, great player. He had about 25 goals and just a great talent. And there, there was concerns as to his ability to play in the team and questions about his defensive play. And, you know, it just it was one of those great trades. I mean, uh, Pierre Turgeon, we talk about it a lot. It's, it was a win-win. I was happy for him because it was a great thing. And, you know, I'd gone through something that principally – as I told you earlier, it's a principal thing for me and it, it didn't work out. So, you know, you move on, you move forward. And it just seemed to click. The chemistry between Alex, myself, and Dave Anderchuk just took off. And his speed, uh, his ability to score, Dave Anderchuk, um, he's a Hall of Famer, scored, uh, I believe, almost 600, or 600 goals, 650 goals, maybe. I think Alex deserves to be in the Hall of Fame too. But, you know, people don't know that that line and maybe this is a good question for both you and Corey. Name the closest line to ever score. All three guys have 50 goals on that on a line. Well, it was really never close except for that line. Uh, Alex ended up getting 76. I got 53. And Dave Anderchuk had 45, and we traded him. And he ended up with 55. And uh, we traded him for a great goalie named Grant Fuhrer. And so, I mean, two Hall of Famers trade for each other. But people don't realize that had that line stuck together, it would have been the only line in 105 years or whatever that all three guys actually had 50 goals on one line. That's incredible. You had me thinking there for a second if anyone was even close, but 
you know, even the Islanders. Did Trotz even score 50? I don't know if he did. Trotz and, ba- Trotz and Boss both did it. Um, and then Clarkie was an amazing, you know, uh, third player. I think he had 30-something in one year. But, um, yeah, no, it's never been, you know, you've had a lot of one-two punches that have scored 50. Rarely do you ever have a, th- a third player. And um, we we actually did, if you prorate the whole thing. But um, so so to to be on a line with that kind of chemistry was 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 pretty cool. And you know we had a lot of success. And and our our power play for those years were myself and Andrew Chuck and McGillney, and then Dale Howard Chuck, God bless him, was on the point. So we had a, a, an unbelievable passer right up there with Gretz. I mean, as far as passing and, and IQ. Just, just an amazing talent. And then Doug Bodger was our, you know, so we was we were always in the top three to four power plays during my time there. So it was a lot of fun. But you know, I took a lot of what I learned from Trotz and Denny and Boss and Clarkey, and you know, all the all the great Islander players. And I was able to really take that there and be a captain and uh, be a part of of a team. So I, you know. I, I also say, you know, having the ability to play under Al Arbor, I call him the Vince Lombardi of hockey. Um, any player who's ever played for Al, what a, what a blessing, because he knew how to, to challenge you. He knew how to teach you. He needed, anybody who played for Al, you were going to walk away knowing that he was trying to bring the best out of you and try to make you the best hockey player you could in it and be the best teammate. Um, so I was blessed all those years. And one of the guys that I was lucky to play under was Ted Nolan. He reminded me a lot of Al. And I always loved when Ted came back and coached for the Islanders and then asked Al to come coach to get his 1500th because those were two coaches that huge respect for and had big impacts in my career and my life. Well, you're not the only person to have said that about Al Arbor and we had Richard Park on recently. He spoke glowingly of Ted Nolan as well. And before we let you go here, you were at UBS Arena recently for the unveiling of the park at UBS Arena. So you're someone who's got a pretty nice backyard rink on Long Island. Just what did you think when you went to Northwell Presents the park at UBS Arena, seeing that kind of winter wonderland outside the Islanders' home? Oh, it's 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 amazing. It is a winter wonderland. Um, we deemed the name of our outdoor rink back in the day it was called the Barn too. We called it the Barn. Uh, so um there's a lot of a lot of similarities and connections but the thing that i'm most excited about for the islander fans is there was this massive tailgating party that everybody talks about and the excitement about building up for the game and when they went to uvs at the time there really wasn't the ability because of where parking was all kind of situated so i know john collins who who helped bring and was inspirational and the winter classic has joined the Islander ownership and, and as obviously president of the business. So between Scott Melkin and, and John Ledecky and John Collins, um, the ability to work with Naira, knowing that they're going to be uh, up in Saratoga for the next couple of years, what a brilliant move to take that space and create outdoor rinks and beer gardens and carnival, you know, games and, and fire pits. And um, I mean, it's, it's for an Islander fan, it doesn't get better. In fact, it's a one of a kind experience because it's really almost having the taste of a winter classic festival, but then have it every time before you go into watch an Islander game. So super excited for the Islanders fans. My kudos, my tip my hat to the Islander organization, the ownership, um, because it's all about the experience. And I was I was imagining a young family 
hey, let's let's go take, you know, I told you about the first time I was windmilled on the ice with my dad and I fell in love with hockey. Well, imagine taking your boy, your young son or daughter and putting them on skates for the first time outside UBS, skating around and then, you know, having a carnival game and something to eat and then go in and watch the New York Islanders. I, I mean, that's a pretty special experience. And for the Islanders to do that and having started my career on Long Island, I live on Long Island, my family's here. Um, you know, I just think it's tremendous uh, and, and it's just special for the fans. Pat, you've been very generous with your time and we can't thank you enough for joining us here on Talking Isles. Anytime, Greg and Corey, good to talk to you guys.